Hi, this is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief of HousingWire. I'm the host of Housing News, and today we're interviewing John Beecham, the founder and CEO of Torac Capital Partners, about affordable housing and the opportunity we have right now to really move that ball forward. Thanks for listening. Hi, Housing News listeners. Welcome back. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. You just heard from our host, Sarah Wheeler, but before we dive into the episode, there's a quick word from our sponsor. For over 60 years, the private mortgage insurance industry has helped more than 33 million low to moderate income borrowers access affordable, low down payment home financing. This year, the private MI industry will continue to bridge the down payment gap for millions of more Americans and serve as the best option for low down payment borrowers. Learn more at www.usmi.org. Thank you for listening, and here's episode nine of season five of the Housing News Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler. I'm Editor-in-Chief at HousingWire with the latest episode of our Housing News Podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, John Beecham, who's the founder and CEO of Torac Capital Partners. John has more than 20 years of experience in the real estate finance industry. He's completed more than $50 billion in transactions and structured financings, and he's won CMBS or Structured Finance Deal of the Year awards four times. John, we're so excited to have you on. Welcome to Housing News. Great. It's really wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Perfect. Well, you know, we always like to start out and say, you know, how did you get into the industry? Because it's it's always a, a, a winding road. It's usually not, wow, I really want to do this since I was 10 years old. So we love to find out everyone's story on that. Sure. Well, it's, a, uh, it's definitely a winding road for me as well. Uh, I graduated from college. I started working in investment banking, uh, doing uh, financial institutions investment banking, uh, focused mostly on uh, insurance companies, actually. So very different sort of world than what I'm doing now. Uh, worked in uh, for various banks in New York and also Australia. When I was in Australia, I lived in a town called Torak. Um, and then along the way, uh, ultimately, I was at Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank bought a mortgage company. And I ended up uh, working on the transaction for Deutsche Bank uh, to buy the mortgage company. So learned about that and then shifted into, after that transaction happened, the commercial real estate group at DB. Uh, and when I was there, I started doing large balance commercial real estate lending. So once again, very different than housing, um, but they tended to be you know, $100 million and up uh, loans, mostly for a CMBS uh, execution uh, you know, through the work, work through the crisis. And ultimately when came out of the crisis, I started getting calls in 2012 from different um, private equity firms that were looking to buy single family rental properties as an investment. And that was really the first time that people were buying uh, rental properties, you know, at, at an institutional scale. And I thought this was great. So at DB, I, I built a team, uh, started financing uh, initially Blackstone and others, and built up a single family rental practice uh, within the commercial real estate group, actually. Uh, we had a JV with our, our resi group as well. Uh, through that, I ended up uh, doing a huge number of deals over that first uh, 2012, 2013, and left to form a company called B2R Finance, which was a single family rental lending company that's sponsored by Blackstone. Uh, built it up to about a billion and a half dollars of lending volume over about a two year period, uh, and then left in 2016 to form uh, Twack. So it's sort of, I, I came in through a very different, different route, uh, more from uh, initially from the investment banking side. No, I've, I've followed some of those moves. So, uh, you know, that, that, uh, SFR space is just so interesting and, and, uh, 
and then the different companies that you've built. So thanks for sharing that. Well, give us a little bit of your vision for, for Torak. What, what are you trying to accomplish there? Well, Torak is a company that uh, I founded in 2016. And the idea is that we are really the Fannie Mae, uh, in particular for the bridge lending industry, but now we've expanded our product suite beyond that. And what we saw is that while there's a ton of liquidity for, I would say, traditional residential mortgage lending, many of your listeners are in that market, there's very little liquidity for things that are outside of the GSE box or even the non-QM box. And so we really focused on that. So it was funding uh, originators who would make loans to people who are rehabbing single family properties, uh, that we would set the guidelines and criteria, uh, make the loans ourselves and ultimately, or, or set the guidelines for types of loans we're looking to buy, but partner with lenders across the country who would do those types of loans. Uh, so we've grown that business. Now we also do multifamily bridge loans as well, in addition to one to four family bridge loans. Uh, we have a 30 year uh, DSCR or a single family rental product, uh, which is close to, my, close to my heart if you remember my background. Um, and we also have a, uh, we actually just launched a infill ground up construction product. So these are all products that we don't, we're not the lender, but we basically are the Fannie Mae of this industry of things that Fannie Mae doesn't do um, to partner with lenders who originate loans and we ultimately acquire. So we do this in the US uh, as well as the United Kingdom where we have a very large presence as well. Well, that's really, you know, that expertise is really um, why we wanted to bring you on and, and talk about the topic that we are today, which is, you know, we can talk about various things, but affordable housing and and what it looks like, you know, where we can go with it and and where you're sitting right now, that that liquidity for different things is so important. But especially when we think about the, uh, you know, the rehab that uh, of older of older units and all that. So so we're going to get to that. So let me start with the first one. You know, you wrote a recent article for Housing Wire and you talked about the opportunity coming out of this pandemic period to actually prioritize affordable housing in some new ways. And, and so I just wanted to ask you about that. Why do you think now is a good time to do that? Uh, well, it's a critical time to do that. Um, first of all, clearly we've all had a lot of time to think uh, over the past year. So we've been in our houses, uh, a lot of time to think about what's going on in the world and what opportunities we have to make things better and some of the problems that we have. Uh, in our space, housing is a, is a fundamental problem that really needs a lot of focus. Uh, there's lots of inequalities in housing access across the country. Uh, and that's become even more important than ever. You've seen you know, really a have and have not coming out of this crisis where certain groups of people tend to be more professional class uh, are actually doing okay. Uh, and clearly, you know, lower income people as a group have had more trouble uh, going through the pandemic. And so you have this double whammy of housing prices getting more expensive throughout this, this time, uh, frankly, in a, in a pretty rapid way across most areas of the country. At the same time that uh, lower income people don't really have the ability to have stable jobs and qualify for mortgages uh, and take advantage of low interest rates that currently exist. So you have this kind of double whammy that's causing this housing prices to get more and more out of reach, uh, especially on the affordable side for people who, uh, you know, people are looking for affordable housing. So that, that, that whole issue has really come to head as a result of the pandemic. Um, and separately, I think nothing like, you know, we'll talk about this in a minute, but nothing like sitting at home for a year to make you rethink how you do things. Uh, so we all do things differently. Many, many of your listeners are at home, uh, probably work from home uh, and will be for a long time. And who knows what that means long term. And so we've had to change the way we operate. We've changed our business practices. And I think it also gives us an opportunity to think about well, how that could apply to the mortgage world and how we could change the way we do things in the mortgage world and make it more efficient in a way that it makes it easier for people across the, across the spectrum to access housing and reduce cost uh, or cost burden 
for those types of uh, transactions to access affordable housing. So I think that also is a good opportunity that's coming out of this right now. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a great point because, you know, every every time you look back uh, in the past with, with this sort of, you know, a, a pandemic, you know, in the past, the disruption has been you know, pretty terrible and, and, but innovation on the other side, right, of any of these sort of uh, giant shocks to the system. So I agree that this could be the perfect time to take on this. And, and for those reasons, you know, you outlined three separate areas where both the industry and government could really make a difference in improving affordable housing. And the first way was to standardize and digitize the real estate transaction, uh, specifically how we record those transactions. You know, why is that such a priority? Uh, well, first of all, let's talk a minute about um, something that we probably don't think about a lot, which is how our mortgage system actually and our, our real estate system actually works. So uh, our real estate system for recording uh, ownership of properties is in this country, a state-based and frankly, a county-based system where every county has different rules, procedures, and practices, fee schedules, and everything else as to how you can actually record your ownership in a property and also record a mortgage. Why is that important to everyone? It's something we don't really think about a lot. Um, that, that system is very different across you know, every region and area of the country. And the reality is when you take a mortgage out or when you buy a house, you know, many of us have a line item and I've, I, I'm, a, I'm a homeowner. I'm just in the process of refinancing my mortgage for the, for the third time. I've owned my house for about 15 years. And every time I do this, I have to go pay title insurance. Um, so why do we have to pay title insurance in this country? And why is that something that is uh, related to digitizing kind of the real estate transactions? Well, the reality is you have, in order to go prove your ownership of a property, you have to hire someone indirectly to go to the mortgage recording office in your, in your county. In many cases, there's physical books where they're going through page and line items to figure out whether you own that property or not. And frankly, that process is very manual. It's very specific to specific areas. There's an army of people around the country who do this. And it's frankly antiquated and out of date. And so what, how that manifests itself in terms of housing is that we're all paying really high premiums for title insurance. Yeah, I'm, I'm paying my you know, third time, I, I pay about half a percent of my house value uh, for my title insurance policy. And when you actually look at the insurance companies and what they're doing, about 80% of that cost that you're paying is not in claims, not actually losses title insurance company is paying out. That's for paying for all the human beings who are going and looking at page number 97 in your lo local county clerk's office to confirm that you own that property. So it's a, it's a massively antiquated system that was originated. And frankly, a lot of these laws were originally created in the late 1800s and no one's really gone back and sort of rethought this or, or digitized this or done anything that relates to to uh, you know, being in the year 2021. It's especially uh, really right in your face as you're looking at all the things we're doing to digitize everything else that we do through our daily lives, especially as a result of the COVID pandemic. And so this means that that title insurance policy, you know, is, the premium is way inflated, which effectively ends up being a tax on real estate transactions for everyone across the country because we're paying a ton of people to go do a ton of manual work that's really unnecessary. So there's a better way of doing this. Uh, the UK actually does it a lot better than we do. And I'm familiar with, with that market because we do, we, we do a lot of uh, transaction volume there as well. And then in the United Kingdom, they have a single national title registry where the government runs, the federal government runs a single system where every single piece of real estate in the United Kingdom 
um, excluding Scotland, sorry, England and Wales to be specific, uh, is recorded on a federal register. You can look it up right now. You can go there and figure out who owns what property and what the mortgage is. And it's centralized. And as a result, there's really no or really minimal title insurance there in that whole market because you don't need to go pay for all those people to do all this sort of manual work that happens here. And so I think if you apply that to the US, by taking all these you know, county-based systems that we have and figuring out a way to digitize this and make it quicker, it means that people save a ton of money every time they buy a piece of property. And individually, you're like, okay, well, maybe half percent of my property value isn't that big of a deal. And that's why this issue has never really gotten addressed. But in a aggregate countrywide perspective, that effective tax in every real estate transaction in the country ends up really costing people a ton of money. So when we think about ways to make housing more affordable, there's big ways and there's little ways. This is kind of one that actually is big in the aggregate. It's little on an individual transaction basis, but a way that actually will have a massive impact on cost affordability uh, and uh, frankly, the speed of getting real estate transactions done uh, will happen as a result of sort of digitizing these systems. So I think that's something that's a massive opportunity for us. It's, it's a really interesting um, idea. I know I've, I've talked to people before who are, are on the forefront of creating property records for other countries using blockchain, right? So starting them out on, on, a, on a great solid footing that can't be changed um, and, and just, but you know, they're, they're kind of redoing it from scratch, so to speak, mm-hmm. with their property records. And so, uh, but, but great idea. I, I know that I, I just started with Housing Wire seven years ago. And so I, I wasn't in the housing business before that. And when the first time that I did a, I think I did a white paper on the uh, title plans and, and how title went, I was like, are you kidding me? This is insane. Like, how does this even work? Um, to your point where people had to go in in person and and search through files. And I, I know that there are lots of companies who are really innovating in that space and really, uh, you know, doing everything that they can, but, you know, your specific proposal here or, or, or thinking about that proposal, it would really take not just an industry change, but that's really a legislative change, right? Yeah. To, I mean, you're looking at kind of a, a big, you know, changing an underlying in- infrastructure. So is there an appetite for this? And, and what would that even look like? Well, it, you're right. It ends up, our system's a state-based system. So it ends up being a state-by-state based uh kind of process for changing this. Um, and it's something that there's frankly not a natural constituency for this because it's one of those types of things where everyone sort of loses, everyone pays a little bit of a price but not enough to sort of really change your lives on an in- individual person basis. Uh, on the other side, you have the title insurance industry that is profiting, profiting from this whole universe. You have county clerks, you have a whole industry of local officials who are elected to various positions. Uh, clearly don't want their positions to be uh, rendered moot as a result of technological change. And so you have a lot of established people in this space who necessarily don't want to necessarily change the system. And so it really takes someone uh, you know, on behalf of really the consumer to ultimately advocate for changing the system and making it a lot better. But the net impact of that is that you end up saving and significantly reducing the time uh, and the speed and we're certainly increasing the speed and reducing the cost of getting real estate transactions done in the country, which has a massive impact across the entire population. You know, one of the other areas that you identified um, correctly, I think, is is really zoning. And if if we want to be serious about affordable housing, there are definitely some things that we have to do as far as how zoning is decided. Uh, 
but you know, what would be the benefits to changing, to changing that, like from a local to a state level, for instance? Um, well, let me give you, let me, let me, let me walk through how it works. So, you know, in, in particular, I live in New Jersey, so I'm very familiar with New Jersey, but the same dynamic happens in a lot of places. So if you have certain areas where you have a certain type of housing, especially in suburban areas, um, and there's towns in New Jersey where the houses are, you know, the odds are two acres and the houses cost, you know, millions of dollars, you know, per house, you know, and we need to create affordable housing, really fundamentally it's a, I view it as a supply demand imbalance, right? So we don't have enough supply of land, supply of land located in good places that we can actually create more housing to deal with our constantly expanding population base. And so fundamentally, there's no more land being created. So the, the solution to this is increasing density long-term. It's just, there's no other way to do it. And by increasing density, you have to go change zoning laws. And right now, you know, if you go to a certain town or any town, you know, that town will have a zoning board of appeals or a zoning board. The, those zoning decisions are made by local officials who are either elected or appointed. And those local officials are taking into account what happens in that specific town. And that interest, in a lot of cases, is very different than what the interest is on a state level or a federal level, which is to create more density and more, more affordable housing, which ultimately creates, solves this issue through increased supply of housing, which is ultimately the solution, I think. Um, and so in order, it's really impossible to get a lot of these local officials to go change how they think about this or, or you know, want to go actually vote to increase density or increase affordable housing in their communities. And so what a good example is really what's happened in California. So in California, it's a great law. Uh, it's called the um, you know, accessory dwelling unit uh, law. And basically the law says that if you have a house in California, uh, you have a as of right ability to build a smaller unit on your property as long as it meets certain size limitations and whatnot. You can build a, basically a, a second unit that's smaller on your existing property. And the beauty of that law, and it's done on a state basis, and there are basically requirements that the local jurisdictions can't stop it. And the building departments have to issue building permits within a certain period of time if you request this. And if they don't, you're defaulted to be able to, you, you're the, deemed to be approved to go build your property. So it's kind of taking away all the levers away from the local jurisdictions in California to frankly do what needs to be done, which is take our existing units of housing, turn those or as many as we can into multi more units, you know, increase density, take a existing plot of land and put two units on that. Overnight, you're potentially doubling the amount of housing we can put on the existing land. And that will never happen if we wait for local jurisdictions to do it. And California has done that. So the, that same sort of idea, I think, could be applied to a lot of other states, frankly, New Jersey, where I live and, and other places, where let's go set goals on a state level. Let's require uh, those goals to be uh, implemented. And let's take those zoning rules or zoning decisions that get in the way of those larger goals we have as a state away from local jurisdictions to actually cause uh, changes to be made and, and zoning laws to be ch changed so that we can actually get more housing on the existing land we have. Because unless we do that, unless we increase the supply of housing, we're never gonna reduce housing prices or certainly make it more affordable for people. So the real solution is increasing supply of housing. I think the, what California has been doing here is, has been fascinating to watch that, um, you know, to see the opposition when it came up, to, to see how they got it through, and now to see the, the application of that. You know, it, it solves several problems at once. So not only does the homeowner now have a way to create income, um, so, so now, you know, a, a famously high 
cost area like LA, people can build this ADU or maybe they already have it and now they can afford their, their main mortgage. And then the person they're renting to, you know, you're just, you're creating this, this whole other opportunity. So I, I think it's a fascinating thing to watch and will be interesting to see who's, who's next, what, what uh, state is going to step up and do that next. Yeah, if we, if we don't do this, what are we doing? I mean, our population is growing. That's that's the reality, and that's good, right? Every you know, America's growing as a country, and it's going to continue to grow. Uh, we're an attractive place to live for for many people from around the world, and so either we're going to go increase density close to the core, or we're going to you know move out further and further away, which means more driving, more commuting time, more time spent in the car. And so th these, these fundamental realities are facing us. And I think we need to address them. And, and the way to address them is to create you know, density close to where people want to work. Um, so we solve both these problems. We solve commuting time issues. And we also solve affordability because we're creating more supply of more houses. And when you have, you know, I said economics, you have more supply, you end up having lower prices over time. You know, uh, when we talk about inventory supply, one of the biggest the hardest things to solve is the fact that we have aging housing stock that there's just no way to bring it, no way to cost effectively, seemingly bring it up to, to code, right? And, and to make it livable for people um, now. So, you know, and, and it often affects lower income neighborhoods the most because, you're, you know, there's not, unless it's gentrifying, you're not going to have the money to go in, you know, raise it and, and build something completely up to code on, on, the, on the spot. My, my son just bought well, I say just, it's been about two years. He bought a house in East Austin, um, which, you know, when I, when I was going to school in that area, it was, you know, it was not the nice part of town and um, you had a lot of really affordable housing. Well, now it's, it's skyrocketing. And, but what they're really doing is going in and just raising what's there and building a, you know, that whole, like buy two lots, put a McMansion on it, whatever that that's not really, that's not solving any of the affordable housing no, issues. That's, that's the opposite. <laughs> so, you know, what are some ways to renovate existing housing stock? To bring some of those assets back online for inventory. Well, we we well. By the way, this is a big chunk of our business, so we, we know this business really really well. We fund lenders who um, make loans uh, to people investors who are buying one of four, generally one of four, but also multifamily properties, uh, renovating them, or a lot of cases changing the use of those properties, uh, and then either renting those out or reselling them. So um, there's probably four or five different elements to that number one is housing stock that currently is not usable. Uh, what do we do with that, right? You have properties and I, I live in, you know, Essex County, New Jersey, and there's areas of Newark where there's tons of housing that's available. It's just not usable or it's not in great condition. And so you fund someone to go renovate that property. You improve the quality of that property. You bring it up to code. Uh, you make it a safe and nice place for families to go live. Uh, and then you're taking a housing unit that really wasn't usable before and bringing it back and making that available. So that's one uh, solution to this. Number two is, you know, changing the nature of the properties. And we finance tons and tons and tons of projects where someone's taking, generally it's the opposite of what you just said, taking two units and making it into one. Nine, nine times out of 10, it's the opposite. It's taking a single family unit and turning it into some sort of multifamily unit. So we see this in, you know, areas of New York City where people are taking brownstones that are single family properties and they're converting them into apartments. So you take a, the existing structure used to have one family. Now you can put, you know, four families, maybe you add another floor to that. So you increase density, but you're you're increasing number of units and therefore number of places where families can live. Once again, close to the core without increasing commuting times and 
you know, increasing the amount of time we spend traveling, uh, which is not great for any of us. Uh, we also see that in suburban areas where people will take a single family house and they'll turn it into a two family unit. Or in some cases, they'll knock down the single, and in LA, they have a great thing. We can actually knock down a single family house and create, they have a micro housing ordinance. And you can build, you know, multiple townhouses on the, you know, four or five townhouses on the land that used to house two single family properties. And so once again, you're increasing density and we, we finance a lot of this. So we see a ton of opportunity to use the private lending industry and frankly use this need for this type of financing that we ultimately provide to transition communities and increase housing, increase the quality of housing uh, and sort of deal with this aging housing stock. And frankly, also housing stock that's not meeting our current demands, which is more generally more density and closer to the core. I'd say another, not necessarily affordable housing related matter, but Another thing that we're seeing is, uh, you know, just a change in what housing is. So right now we've all sat in our houses for last year. Many of us are working there. And then the nature of the house has changed from uh, someplace where we live to someplace where we live and are contemplating potentially working for a long time. That means that the type of housing that people are looking for and necessarily want to have is going to change for a lot of people. They want to have a, a home office. They want to have a little bit more space which means that you're gonna have this you know, transition in the types of properties that people wanna have, that's gonna create a massive need to actually create that, the, that, that type of property because it doesn't exist across the country right now. So as the nature of a home and how we use our home changes as well, that also creates a big, big uh, demand for additional financing for this. And frankly, that financing market is one that's underserved by you know, all the traditional sources of financing. That's the opportunity for us. Banks generally don't do this type of lending. The GSEs don't do any of this type of lending. Uh, so it's sort of left to the private, uh, private lending market. And we're, we've been a big driver of institutionalizing this entire space to provide this type of capital to actually renovate and create, create quality housing uh, in all these areas of the country. So we're really proud of, of what we're doing. Well, well, let me follow up on that uh, because you mentioned California and LA specifically. What other parts of the country do you feel like are you know, where, where this is happening or you guys are working and seeing, you know, a really receptive reception here? Uh, well, we, we all, frankly, all over the country. So, and, uh, you know, or it's different, different needs in different areas of the country. So in Orlando, um, putting aside COVID, but longer term, it, it's, it's a really growing sort of vibrant area of, uh, you know, Florida with great long-term prospects. And there's not nearly enough property there. So you see a lot of demand for additional building of single family properties in that area. Um, in New York City, uh, you see a transition from you know, larger, you know, like I said, single family properties into multi-unit properties. You know, we see this in frankly, a lot of areas, Austin, Houston, uh, Newark near us, uh, LA, um, where you know, there's a need for increasing density close to the core. So most cities have a beltway. Um, you know, it's really, people wanna live inside that beltway. Uh, so it's sort of changing the nature of properties that are inside that beltway to add, uh, to, to add units. So our top states in uh, Torak are, you know, the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Florida, Texas, California, really, you know, Illinois. It's all the major states across the country. And it's generally, uh, it's generally urban, suburban areas in those states where there's a lot of demand for this. Really interesting. Um, you know, I, I definitely think you, you brought up close to the core several times. And, and I know one of the, the issues with the ADUs in California is just a lack of parking. Right, so you're adding density without adding parking, and sometimes actually 
converting the parking space, maybe the garage or, or where you would have a garage into a living space without, you know, so now you've, you've displaced several vehicles. Um, and so I, I feel like transportation, uh, you know, solutions are part of this because uh, if you have a very car-based culture, right, I'm, I'm on the outskirts of, of Dallas, so I'm not sure you could get more car-based. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, yes. You know, the suburbs of Dallas, there's no way for me to get anywhere unless I drive 20 miles. And so it's just, um, it's just so interesting because I, I do feel like that some of these, some of the things that we want to do with density, then you have to make sure that there's, there's the right transportation in place. Yeah, but and the market also ultimately will solve that, right? So as you have these, um, you know, property, the density increases in a certain area, you know, certain properties will be converted to be parking or parking garages or, or other things like that, that sort of provides dense, you know, parking solutions for denser areas. Clearly you see that in urban areas and you see that in a lot of suburban areas as well, we have centralized parking. And that's something that will naturally happen over time. So I think it's a, it's a type of issue that is a short-term issue, but sort of will get solved over time uh, through converting, you know, one of those houses into a parking lot or, or a garage depending on the nature of the density of that, of that property. Um, and there's lots of areas of the country where actually you do have plenty of street parking. Um, by changing street parking regulations and making that more liberal as well, we can use the existing space that we already have, certainly in a lot of suburban areas and increase density without actually having a parking issue in lots of areas as well. So it's kind of a, the solution is obviously just like all real estate, very specific to the area, but I think there are, are lots of solutions to that particular problem. Well, that's great to hear. So, you know, we have a new administration, which seems to have a real uh, focus on affordable housing, uh, definitely on on some racial equity issues in housing, at least. And so, um, you know, are you hopeful that that some of these things that you're talking about that could be priorities that we could actually do? Do you, do you feel like there's some some appetite for it and, and some legislation or regulation coming? I, I do. I I do, I do think there's a lot of appetite from the Biden administration to address these issues, and that's great because I think the federal government can provide a you know, massive um, you know, sort of jawboning and sort of incentive to sort of change some of these things in the, in the structure for a lot of these, these types of issues. Um, I honestly think most of these issues end up being state issues, though. A lot of these solutions are probably coming through the state houses more than they're coming through the federal government because the nature of real estate and a lot of the issues we've talked about today are fundamentally come down to state decisions and state legislatures to ultimately drive them. So I think the uh, change in administration certainly can, you know, increase focus on this. And we haven't talked about, you know, a lot of the other, um, you know, more federal policies that are affecting this in particular. But I, but I think, you know, whatever you do on a federal basis, if you don't change the density and you don't increase the housing stock of the country, we're not going to long-term solve our problem of having more people than we have housing and therefore have an affordable housing issue. So I think unless you address that issue, everything else is going to be kind of band-aids that aren't going to solve the core. Makes total sense. It's all local, right? So I, I so appreciate that. And John, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate your insights. It's been really great having you here. It's a wonderful conversation. I'm uh, pleased to spend some time with you. Well, thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out HousingWire's daily podcast, HousingWire Daily, which is a wrap of HousingWire's hottest stories and now available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And we'll see you next week.